Welcome to the third part of the Network Capital Podcast. Uh, you've been gracious with your time, and we've now I'm pleased to say crossed three million downloads for both uh, for for the first part of the podcast. Um, today we're going to dive deep into your last years at UN and your foray into the Indian political system. Um, could you please tell us? what you were thinking you'd already walked us through uh, your journey in the un what what why did you want to become uh, uh, un head at that time what were some of your uh, goals and uh, how did you prepare yourself uh, for that challenge well in the sense i i thought my entire working life which was pretty much my entire adult life because i joined the un at 22 uh, that that essentially was a preparation for the top job i i i was uh, in a very unusual position in that i would have been one of the very 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 few people who would have actually done everything that a secretary general needed to know about the un's work in the course of my career i had done humanitarian work i had done uh, political work i had done peacekeeping work which at that point was the the biggest uh, responsibility facing the un I had done I had worked in the Secretary General's office and seen a lot of the diplomatic contacts with heads of state and government around the world. I had understood all the issues. I had done management and budget as the head of the largest department of the UN. I had done reform where I had to streamline the organization, cut the organization back and and conserve resources. I had done public information communicating the messages of the organization to the world. So in many ways mine was literally the most perfect imaginable resume. Um, right for the job of secretary general uh, i say this with a laugh because of course that's not how it works and uh, but you also re- had a really strong network dr thrur we discussed that last time through your work because everyone knew about it you also had a strong network um isn't that right well i mean i i obviously you know once you get to the level i'd got to at the un uh, i obviously had frequent uh, and friendly dealings with all the ambassadors of all the countries the main countries and less with with lower ranking diplomats uh, uh, below the ambassadors um, i i think you know you develop a reputation fairly quickly within the organization uh, as well as with its uh, its partners interlocutors its uh, its uh, the diplomats accredited to it so by the time 2005 rolled around with elections due in 2006 a number of ambassadors started popping up in a friendly very friendly way and asking me whether i would consider contesting in fact um, i still remember a couple of uh, ambassadors from small asian states saying that looking around they couldn't think of an asian better qualified that for asia to get its turn which was due uh, that that turn uh, couldn't be better fulfilled than by me i was very flattered but i smilingly replied to all of them that as you know I'm a, an international civil servant and that indeed the only way that you can contest for this job is 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 uh, to be invited to do so by a member state to be nominated by a member state. Right. And um, and I had no particular reason to believe that the government of India which was my uh, country uh, had any reason uh, any desire to put forward a candidate. So I I didn't take it too seriously but the thought had been expressed and therefore it had begun to uh, 
come into my mind that this is something that a lot of very credible countries and ambassadors were beginning to think of as a realistic prospect. Um, and, you know, it's, it's relatively unusual uh, for a, a career civil servant. In fact, the only career civil servant from within the UN uh, without any extensive governmental career behind him to become uh, Secretary General was indeed uh, Kofi Annan, who was then the incumbent. So it seemed a, a long shot and I didn't give it much thought until in September of 2005, when he came for the General Assembly, uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh asked me himself, would you be interested in contesting? And at that point I said, well, if you nominate me, I'll certainly be interested. Uh, and he said, what do you think the challenges are? Did he know are? you at that time? Like, had you worked yeah, together? Yeah, no, he and, us, he and I knew each other. Not well, we knew each other in Geneva, but I was with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and he was heading the South Commission, which was a, an economic development organization. So we didn't work together at all in any in any way, but uh, obviously amongst the Indian expatriate community in Geneva, there would be gatherings in which we would meet. And so I, I'd seen him socially uh, in, the, in the second half of the 1980s when he and I were both in Geneva. Uh, I left Geneva in late 89. I think he may have left slightly before that. He went on to have a very distinguished career in India, during which I only met him once when uh, my book, uh, Nehru, the Invention of India, was published in 2003. And Murli Dera, who insisted on hosting the launch of that book in Mumbai, invited Dr. Manmohan Singh, who was then the leader of the opposition in the Rajya Sabha, uh, to come and be the person who would launch it and make a speech. And he made a wonderful speech, and I enjoyed the evening with him, and we had dinner together uh, at Muli Dera's home afterwards. So that was a renewal of friendship, but I can never pretend it was a, a close relationship. Then when he became prime minister and came to New York in 2004, uh, as usual, of course, as the senior Indian, I was brought out by the UN to greet my, uh, my, my head of government. Uh, right. But he, he was gracious beyond that, invited me to lunch in his hotel room and discussed everything. I remember having a number of very frank conversations with him uh, at that time. And we had become uh, fairly friendly uh, in the course of that. But I, wouldn't, I did not presume, for example, on a visit to India to call on the prime minister. I had no particular business to raise with him. And though I did come to India uh, in 2005 to speak um, I was honored by St. Stephen's College with the request to deliver the 125th anniversary lecture. So I had to come to Delhi for that. I still didn't uh, make it a point to call on the prime minister. I felt it was not uh, my place to do so, to intrude on a busy man. Nonetheless, right. when he came in 2005, we met again. And this time in a very formal meeting with his national security advisor, uh, M.K. Narayan. And by his side, he's the one who raised the subject. And that's when the conversation began. So he asked me what he, I thought the challenges would be. And I said, I thought the principal challenge would be China and the principal opportunity would be the U.S. Because of India's very uh, friendly relations with the U.S., India was negotiating the Indo-U.S. nuclear deal at that time. And I said, you know, if you talk to a couple of the key countries, you'll get a sense of what's going on. The Chinese are the ones I don't know about. And now, is that how it panned out? No, this is September of 2005. Uh, between September and December, the issue went nowhere. And I began to feel that the government had just floated the trial balloon and dropped the idea. Um, I did have ongoing conversations with uh, the National Security Advisor and once or twice with the Prime Minister by telephone. Uh, and, and it was clear that uh, with the Prime Minister, there was now 
uh, a note of uncertainty about how to take this forward. So what I suggested was that the best thing was to was for the prime minister to ask uh, President Bush himself. He was due on a state visit to India in February of 2006. Uh, and Mr. Naranan thought that was a very good idea. But as it happens, the issue was not raised because at that point, the negotiations on the Indo-US nuclear deal were very complex, uh, very serious. And I think that uh, uh, for the prime minister, uh, he didn't want anything else to interfere with those discussions. And so the issue never came up. And I, I don't say this with any note of reproach. I fully respect the priorities of the government. But I think that may have been the last opportunity we would have had to let the Americans in on our intention to present a candidate. Um, so in February, nothing happened. At that point, I gave up and I assumed nothing was going to happen. Um, I was asked, however, by uh, Mr. Narayan and by the... I would imagine no, I, it would have been so pleasant. Um, listen, the problem at that point was that uh, it wasn't pleasant, but at the same time, I had no real basis for expecting it. Now, I wasn't a government servant. I wasn't an Indian politician or an Indian bureaucrat. So I had no entitlement to expect anything from the government. And I didn't act as if I was entitled to this. So don't worry, I wasn't that fragmented or torn at that point. Mm. But then uh, I was asked by um, the... Um, the uh, Prime Minister to speak to the Foreign Secretary, Sham Saran. And one thing that was agreed at that time was that um, it was important to test what the Chinese felt about it, because the expectation on the part of the Foreign Ministry also was that an Indian candidate might attract a Chinese veto. So um, I thought that was a legitimate concern. And uh, I was asked to do this essentially on my own. The government did not want to uh, be the ones broaching this with the Chinese. So I, I called the Chinese permanent representative, Wang Wangya, and I said, listen, uh, Ambassador, uh, I have to ask you something rather sensitive. Um, I'd like to make a visit to Beijing and to meet the foreign minister. He said, yes, of course, no problem. I said, no, wait a minute. This is not an official UN mission. I'm not coming on the UN's dime or on the UN's time. I will be taking leave and coming on my own ticket uh, for a particular purpose. And I'll tell you what, I, what I'm coming for. Um, I've been asked to consider the possibility of contesting um, for Secretary General, and I wanted to speak to the Foreign Minister about what the Chinese government's view was. And I'm telling you what my intention is and why I want to come, because if China doesn't want to receive me on that subject, I will get the signal. I'll get the message, and that should be the end of that. So that's how diplomacy is conducted. You don't you know, directly do these things. So I said, fine, I, I'll come. If you understand, this is why I want to come and that I'm not coming as a UN official. I'm not coming on behalf of the government of India. I'm coming in my own steam. So uh, he said, fine. A few days went by. Then he called me back and he said, uh, I've spoken to the foreign minister and uh, we have, I've been asked to instruct. I've been instructed to tell you that you're most welcome to come to China. We look forward to seeing you. When are you coming? To which I said, I hope it's very wasn't, clear. Wasn't once. that surprising for you? It was. It was. And I said, I want to make it very clear. I'm not coming on behalf of the UN, nor am I coming on behalf of the government of India. He said, in that case, we will send a car to the airport to meet you. <laughs> uh, and so I, I used up, as I remember, all my frequent flyer miles to fly to Beijing for 24 hours. I was taken straight from the airport by a foreign ministry car to a meeting with the foreign minister from the moment I landed. Uh, and and um, I must say it was... Um, uh, amazing conversation. It, it was meant to be a 15-minute appointment. 
Uh, it went on and on in the end for an hour and a half, during which he was interrupted a couple of times by people passing him notes, no doubt telling him his next meeting was waiting. But he moved them away, shooed them away and continued talking. Uh, he had been China's ambassador in France, so he suddenly and abruptly switched to French to test my French. So and switched to French from English or from English. We were obviously I, we couldn't speak in. Well, you never know. You speak Bangla. I mean, my partner was really surprised to hear that. <laughs> anyway, so we, we spoke in English and then because uh, it was a one on one conversation, he could have done it the formal Chinese way with an interpreter, but he preferred to talk to me one on one. Right. And then um, um, uh, oh, I beg your pardon. I think he did actually have an interpreter. I'm sorry. He did have an interpreter. But he switched to French. We had a good conversation in French. He, he was suitably impressed by my French, told me it was very good. And then uh, with a mischievous smile on his face, he said, clearly, all you need to do now is to learn Chinese. And then he <laughs> pulled out a piece of paper and started scrawling some characters in Chinese, saying, this is your name in Chinese or whatever. I wish I'd kept that page, but it was a tremendously warm gesture. And at the end of the conversation, he said, uh, you can convey to your government the following uh, message, and he s said that in English, I remember those words explicitly in English, China will not stand in your way. Uh, and I took that as a very clear signal there would be no Chinese veto. China will not stand in your way. And I very um, uh, confidentially wrote up a, a detailed account of the conversation and sent it to Delhi. Uh, the foreign secretary was, was surprised and pleased about this. And undoubtedly, it was convey, conveyed to the prime minister and the prime minister's office. Right. I've forgotten which month this was. I think this was about March or early April. And then again, there was complete silence. And uh, the complete silence was a bit unnerving for me because having gone this far, I thought there'd be some signal for me. Listen, we've decided not to go ahead or we are going ahead or whatever. Nothing. And I remember I was in Washington for some other meeting on a day in June, late June. When I got a call out of the blue from the foreign secretary, Chancellor, and saying, oh, I want to let you know we are announcing uh, your candidacy today. And I said, I beg your pardon. Look, at least give me 24 hours to get back to New York, prepare, tell my boss and so on. Uh, don't do this. He said, I'm sorry. The press uh, statement has already gone out. This is the way in which India works, I guess. So um, while I was in Washington at this other meeting. Was the intention to pleasantly surprise you or shock you or none of the I, I, I can't speak for other people's intentions. <laughs> All I can say is that's how the announcement came. Right. Uh, and and um, uh, obviously there was a huge uh, uh, story in India. We never put forward a formal candidate. The Vijayalakshmi Pandit's name had been discussed briefly in the early 50s. We never put forward a formal candidate for the secretary generalship. So suddenly, you know, there's this whole... Uh, frisson of excitement in India. Uh, at the UN, I had to tell Kofi Anand that this, this was my situation, that I was find, finding myself in the same position he had been in 10 years earlier. He gave me his blessing, but said, you do understand I can't endorse you because then I can't I'll be taking sides amongst various candidates. I said, I fully understand. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and, you know, I, I started getting calls from all sorts of people. And to my pleasant surprise, a lot of people showing some enthusiasm and excitement for this. Um, in a short while, in a few days, I was invited by the government of India, this time at their expense, to visit Delhi uh, to meet the prime minister formally uh, as the anointed candidate, meet the, the various political leaders to make sure they had 
uh, we had everyone's support, which I did in the last week of June. It was a very good visit. Uh, former Prime Minister Ajay. Do you really need Dr. Tharoor? Uh, um, we are all unfamiliar with how this actually works. Uh, so no, I would say I would say on this one, I had enough reason to believe that Sonia Ji, uh, the Congress Party president, uh, was supportive. Uh, but the decision had to be made by the Prime Minister's office. And I think it was left entirely to the Prime Minister to take the final call. Um, I know Mr. Narayanan, the NSA, was enthusiastic. Um, I know that the foreign ministry bureaucrats were considerably less so. Uh, and I don't blame them. Uh, that's simply the way things are. Uh, and uh, I think um, uh, Sonia G certainly was consulted and made it clear that she was she was quite happy with the idea. But the final call came from Dr. Manmohan Singh. And it's possible that the way things work, once a prime minister, having considered all the pros and cons, decided to go ahead, at that point, uh, the, the, the government machinery swung quickly into action. There was no time for further notifications and consultations. But when I came to Delhi, I saw everybody. I did see Sonia Ji. I did see the ministry, senior officials, including the ones assigned to steward my campaign. I saw the uh, uh, the, the leader of the opposition, uh, Mr. Dwani, I saw Mr. Vajpayee, I saw the communist leaders, Mr. Karat, Mr. Yechuri, I saw the ministers uh, from uh, coalition allies of the government, memorable conversations with the likes of Lalu Prasad Yadav and so on. I saw the president, the Rashtrapati, Abdul Kalam. It was an extraordinary uh, range of contacts the government organized for me. And I did the round of all the television channels. It was quite astonishing for me to sort of discover the Indian media that way. And uh, uh, that was a time when everyone from Barkhadat to Arnab Goswami, believe it or not, uh, was extremely generous and fawning over, over me. And we had some very, very good shows. Um, so it was, it was sort of a triumphal visit to India for three or four days, following which um, uh, the Indian government arranged... Did that me, help your candidature in any way? No, that merely showed up the national backing for it, because to have Vajpayee Saab's blessing and Advani Saab's blessing, as well as the communist blessing and the Congress uh, UPA allies blessing, meant that it was a, not going to be an object of domestic controversy. That was right. the important thing that was achieved by my visit, nothing else. But also, of course, I had to familiarize myself with the ministry, uh, who all in the ministry would be directly associated with my campaign and so on. And one of the things we immediately decided in the first few days was to um, get the African Union, uh, the Organization of African Unity, as it still was, to invite me to address their summit on the subject of the UN election, which uh, Ban Ki-moon, the South Korean candidate, and the Thai candidate had already been slated to address. Um, so um, there were other candidates, but not all of them were planning to come to Banjul and Gambia to address mm. the uh, address the OEU. But I uh, uh, agreed to go. In fact, I thought it was a welcome opportunity. And, of course, I was the only one who was able to address the OAU in both languages, English and French. I delivered a speech half in English, half in French, and that was uh, a, quite, quite a hit. But there already we got the inklings of uh, some of our problems because at that point the Chinese attending the conference um, were, were certainly quite overtly unfriendly, and the Indian diplomats accompanying me uh, began to pick up signs that the Chinese were poo-pooing an Indian candidacy uh, to, to some others. Uh, nonetheless, we did that. Um, soon after that was the first ballot. Um, we hadn't, you know, the, the candidacy had been announced very, very late in that Mr. Ban Ki-moon had been a candidate since the previous September. The Thai candidate had been announced even earlier. Sri Lanka had put forward Jayanta Dhanapala. 
uh, Afghanistan had, uh, was putting forward Ashraf Ghani, who subsequently became president. Uh, we had um, uh, there were there were only two candidates of the seven in the fray who entered after me. One was the president of Latvia, who thought that the Asians being divided, she might get through. Uh, right. And and the other was um, uh, a Jordanian prince, who's also a friend of mine, uh, Zaid Raad al Hussein, who later became the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. But it's, it was a stellar cast. It was a top-notch cast of characters um, in that in that race. And I was particularly gratified. You when almost won. In the first ballot, yeah, I came uh, within two votes of Ban, um, which I think totally took aback the Indian diplomats who had not expected me to do so well. Um, and, um, and it made everyone wake up and take things seriously. Uh, there was also... Um, indications from the Chinese that they had voted for all the Asian candidates uh, on principle. because They said their only interest was in ensuring that an Asian should be secretary general. So um, I think that the Chinese had not uh, at that stage uh, abstained in my case. Uh, but only remember, this is an election of just 15 countries. So it's not, unfortunately, um, an election with the General Assembly where uh, a country like India has a fairly strong backing amongst a large number of member states from Asia, from Africa, from the developing world generally, the G77, the non-line movement, all of that gave us a strong thing. This is an election only in the Security Council, because the way these elections work is that the Security Council will um, put forward one name and only one name to the General Assembly, and it's always ratified by the General Assembly without uh, any serious challenge. There is no previous example in all these 70 odd 75 years of the UN's existence of the council putting two names and asking the GA to vote. The General right. Assembly is purely a rubber stamp in this process. It's a council election. So we knew the battle was entirely within the council. Anyway, there were four ballots, uh, but only in the fourth ballot, which took place in early October, I think it was Mahatma Gandhi's birthday or a day before, only in that fourth ballot uh, was um, uh, a different colored ballot paper given to the permanent members. And the reason for this is very clear. In the Security Council, the permanent members have a veto. And, right. um, and uh, so it doesn't matter if you've got a couple of votes against you from non-permanent members. Uh, they might eventually change, change their minds. But if you have a veto-bearing veto member state uh, who is vetoing you, then you have a problem. I think when we spoke last time, I mentioned the Kofi Annan situation. You did, where, yeah. where Where the French vetoed him until the last round. But he didn't drop out because all the other candidates had somebody or the other vetoing them also. And that's when a deal was struck with the French and the French veto was lifted. Uh, whereas uh, in the fourth ballot, Ban Ki-moon had no veto-wielding power against him. And I did have one. Only one, one veto-wielding power voted against me and one abstained. Uh, it was pretty clear that the abstention was China because they had promised they would not stand in my way, quote unquote, they would not vote against me and they kept their word. The uh, veto-bearing power, however, was the US. And uh, though it was subsequently revealed in any case to the world in an indiscreet memoir by the then US representative, John Bolton, I did get a call just before the vote from Nicholas Burns, um, who was the undersecretary um, of the State Department, who was actually um, spearheading all of this to say that the U.S. had decided to go for Ban Ki-moon. So I was not uh, surprised. I was aware that uh, this was happening. Uh, 
Uh, and, um, and in the I, memoir, I, the reason is also alluded, right? Why they wanted not a strong <laughs> That was Bolton's thing. I, I'm told by some other people that it may not be in subsequent editions of the memoir, but it was in the first edition, and occasioned a lot of comments at that time, when he said um, that his instructions from Condi Rice were that we don't want a strong Secretary General. Uh, I think there were there were other factors as well as I pieced together afterwards. I had very good relations with large segments of the U.S. establishment, ironically, not with Mr. Bolton, uh, uh, but I knew many, many others. And though I knew Condi Rice superficially, um, mm. we should have got a, a, a clue from the fact that she never agreed to see me as the Indian candidate. That is that whenever the Indian ambassador asked for an appointment for this purpose, it was uh, politely referred to somebody else, Nicholas Burns usually, and so on. Um, so we should have got a clue. But in any case, I discovered later by talking to very many senior officials who were very friendly to me that um, the, the ultimate calculation for them was that the Koreans had made a huge issue of this from the very start. That is from the announcement of Barnes' candidacy in September the previous year, so full year earlier, uh, they had uh, made a very strong pitch that this really mattered to Korea. The U.S. ambassador in Korea had traveled to Washington to say that, you know, we have so many issues between us and President, uh, I think his name was President No, I think, of, of, of Korea, that, that we really need to give them things that don't matter to us. Who cares about the U.N.? Let's give them this, this guy. Uh, that was one message that I gather was conveyed to Washington. And at the same time, because India was focused on the Indo-U.S. nuclear deal, and we didn't raise this till many, many months later, um, the perception was that this didn't matter as much to India as it clearly mattered to Korea. So we won't lose anything if we don't give this to India. We will lose something if we give this to the Koreans. And that factor was a very major one. In addition to the Bolton, fa the Bolton factor that we don't want a strong Secretary General, because there um, I had a very good friend. I'm sure he won't mind my indiscretion now. He was the senior American in the UN as I was under Secretary General. He was under Secretary General for administration and management. And he was very close to Bolton and very close to the Republican Party establishment. He wasn't a civil servant. He was a manager who had been brought in by the U.S. government uh, to take that job. And he told me, listen, what I'm hearing from Bolton is no more Kofi's. And the problem with Kofi at that point was that he had uh, attracted a lot of enmity in Washington by saying that the 2003 invasion of Iraq was illegal under the U.N. Charter. That word got a lot of people riled up. And they felt that anybody with the capacity to uh, address a world audience above the heads of governments and thereby challenge governments uh, was undesirable in a position uh, which uh, uh, could do them some, some particular uh, damage. Whereas Mr. Ban was seen as a much uh, safer bet because he, he was not particularly uh, given to, to uh, articulation um, in any of the UN languages that, that they were worried about. So... Um, all of these things, somebody like me was probably just not the kind of person that U.S. administration at that time would have wanted. And that's also the luck of the draw. I mean, I, uh, if, if, you know, the Clinton administration had been six or seven years later, uh, it may have been a very different story. Because right. they're the ones who strongly backed Kofi Annan and they're the ones who, um, who um, uh, uh, batted for his, his reappointment well before it was even due. But in this case... Um, the, the Bush administration didn't want that kind of secretary general, so that was that. It was over, and we ended up with um, we ended up with the result we got. Absolutely no hard feelings. I thought you know some things are worth doing uh, merely because um, 
uh, they're the right thing to do. And I felt that mounting that candidacy uh, and losing was better than never to have tried at all and always spending the rest of your life wondering, what if I had done this? I yeah. might have been so much better. Whatever. Here, I tried. I lost. It gave me actually a lot of peace. Uh, I was con consoled by the Bhagavad Gita's argument that you really need to be um, focused on the on the act without expectation of reward. The reward was indeed not available. And I had one new challenge, which was to reinvent a life that had it not been for this race, was actually quite predictable for the foreseeable future. That is, I was an Undersecretary General of the UN, but I was also a career civil servant, which is not true of most of the Undersecretary General, who are yeah. so-called political appointees. Uh, and therefore, I had a valid contract that would have kept me going at the UN till 60. In fact, the retirement age had just been expanded to 62. Um, and in fact, um, before I hit 62, the UN expanded the retirement age to 65. So actually, at the time that I had lost the Secretary Generalship, at the age of 50, I didn't know that I had 15 years of a UN career left if I wanted it. But um, but uh, I just felt it was not right to stay. Ban, who knew me earlier, uh, was gracious and invited me to remain, at least on a one-year contract as Undersecretary General, heading one of the field operations. Uh, and I thought about it very briefly and thought, no, that wouldn't be right. Uh, because at the end of the day, having contested for the top job and failed, Anything that I were to say or do would cast a shadow over the uh, the Bond administration in the sense that if I did something better than him, uh, it would be uh, a reflection. People say, oh, he should have been there, etc. Uh, if I if I um, did something that was objectively critical, it would look like sour grapes on my part. If I did something that was supportive, they'd say, you know, how hypocritical. I mean, it just it just was a no win, I thought, to remain in those circumstances. So. I just very politely accepted one month to be able to tie up some of my loose ends and, and plan my next steps. And I quit the UN uh, at the end of March 2007, uh, one month short of 29 years in my UN career. And I look back on, on a very satisfying 29 years. You and I have talked about many of the reasons why it was satisfying, uh, not all of them, but many of them. And therefore, I, I, I was able to march out of the place with head held high. And I was quite determined not to go back because I felt that um, one of the things I had been very struck by when I was a young official was the number of very many senior UN people, often legends of their time, former Undersecretary General, who would come almost cap in hand to relatively younger and mid-ranking officials like myself, asking for consultancy contracts and assignments during their retirement. And I thought nothing could be more humiliating. I won't name the people because these are people who deserve all the respect they earned when they were on the job. But to see the way some of them behaved after retirement was for me deeply, deeply embarrassing. And I vowed as a young man that I would never be caught dead doing what they were doing. I would never go and ask anybody at the UN for a UN assignment. And, um, and so once I walked out, the only time I, I ever went back to the UN twice once was as Minister of State for External Affairs in the Government of India, mm. leading the Indian delegation. We, do, we have different uh, delegations and different leaders uh, throughout the General Assembly session. So after the foreign minister had come and gone, I went in the second week heading the delegation there, met Ban Ki-moon, who had won, had a very amicable handshake in front of the UN and the Indian flags. Um, uh, that was my one visit and spoke for India in a number of committees and so on in the General Assembly, uh, which was very satisfying for me. And then the second occasion I went back was when I was invited by the UN 
and by the Norwegian government, which had just renovated the Security Council chamber for a commemorative seminar uh, on the role of the Security Council a year later, uh, where they invited uh, only one non-UN speaker, and that was me. It was a great honor. So I went off there. Uh, I didn't stay very long. I think I stayed one or possibly two days um, uh, as, as a guest of the UN and spoke of the Security Council, met Ban again, of course, and others. Uh, but apart from those two official purposes of being in, I haven't gone back to the UN and I have no regrets about that. I have very fond memories. And I want to keep them that way. And lots of impact as well that you created, which, uh, you know, which has hugely been inspirational for you know, young millenni millennials around the world. Um, after this, uh, Dr. Sarur, you had a brief stint in the private sector. And one thing that we've heard you talk about was that uh, it was fun, but you, you learned something about yourself. What was that? And uh, what was the stint with the private sector? Well, I think we talked about the fact that I got into both the IIMs uh, after, after college and I leapt at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy instead. And the reason for that was that I never thought that the prospect of selling soap and detergent for a Hindustanized multinational was ever going to appeal to me. Um, right. When at 50, I was suddenly out of a job, I decided not to look so skeptically at the private sector because at least it would help pay the rent. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, decided to, I decided to accept an offer from an Indian businessman uh, based in Dubai who'd spent his entire career in the Arab world and particularly in the UAE, but who wanted to explore the possibility of expansion to India. And he thought that with my name recognition and so on, I could open some doors for him and explore some prospects. Uh, both in India generally and in Kerala in particular. So that sounded like an interesting assignment. I took it on. Um, uh, I, I worked for um, a little under two years, a year and a half or so with him, during which I made fairly frequent visits to India and within that very frequent visits to Kerala. I went to Kerala uh, in the end about a dozen times in those less than two years. Um, mainly because he had, uh, with hindsight, a slightly crazy idea to set up a, a modern state-of-the-art steel plant. He'd been uh, trading in steel and so on in Kerala, which had not traditionally been known as being hospitable to industry of any sort. But I conducted many of the discussions, um, and I, I had been somebody who had kept links with, with people in a, in a friendly way, uh, irrespective of party. I, the communists were ruling at that time, but I had good relations with the um, with the uh, industries minister, Elamaram Karim, who is now a Rajya Sabha MP. I had good relations with, uh, uh, I met uh, uh, the the uh, first secretary of the Communist Party, who is now the chief minister, Pinarayi Vijayan. So I had established links and dialogue with all these people. Thomas Isaac, the finance minister, then and now, became a friend. And in fact, he even wanted to discuss with me the prospect of becoming a sort of goodwill ambassador for Kerala. But I kept saying, you know, let's let's keep that option open. I'm not sure what I'll do, etc. Because I didn't want to be associated necessarily with one political party uh, at that point. So to cut a long story short, um, I, I, I kept going in and out. And during these visits, whenever I went to Delhi, which was not on every visit, Kerala was much more frequent. I would make it a point to make courtesy calls on the people I knew. Uh, that included uh, just one Singh. By then, Sri Vajpayee was a little um, uh, unwell. I didn't think it was right to trouble him. Uh, I did see Advani Saab once. I saw Jaswan Singh Saab a couple of times. Yashwan Sinha Saab, uh, who had also been foreign minister, and I'd known him there. Uh, and I saw Sonia Ji uh, fairly frequently. And she was um, 
particularly friendly, asked me, in fact, she asked me to deliver the Jawaharlal Nehru Memorial Lecture in the year 2007, I believe it was, or possibly eight. I was the, the, the person who delivered that lecture. Um, uh, I, I had met her earlier as well, uh, speaking at a seminar um, uh, for the Rajiv Gandhi Foundation in the late 90s. And I had also spoken um, to her when she had visited New York and the UN as part of a familiarization visits when she became leader of the party. So she wasn't a stranger, but we became friendlier then. And in any case, um, in, in uh, early 2009, the conversations began to veer towards a fairly serious interest on the part of the Congress party uh, in me, uh, in which at one point I was considered possibly for a Rajya Sabha seat. Uh, there were other priorities at that time that didn't happen. Uh, Were you interested in that, Dr. Tharoor? Look, I was certainly interested in contributing to India one way or the other. And uh, and, and the Rajya Sabha seat that was being discussed was a nominated seat, not a political party seat. Um, uh, in fact, uh, uh, in the course of 2008, I had actually been invited by the Speaker of the Lok Sabha, Somnath Chatterjee, uh, to a round table of eminent citizens. There were eight or nine of us, including Narayana Murthy, the film director, Sham Benegal and others to discuss the functioning of parliament and to share with us his frustrations with the way parliament is going and seek our advice as eminent citizens. So, uh, I mean, I, I've been taking an interest in all of this. Um, I even was invited by the speaker to deliver a lecture in the parliament library on terrorism after 2611 uh, for the benefit of MPs. And, uh, and I did so. I think there were only about 40 MPs showing up and a lot of staff. But... Uh, uh, but still, I had not been, uh, I mean, I had kept connected, as it were, to the uh, to the political process, to parliaments and all these ways. But don't forget, the speaker was a communist. Uh, it, it, I mean, I had really not shown any political credentials at that point to any particular party. And my books had been equal opportunity offenders to everybody. I had been critical of the BJP, critical of the Congress and critical of the communists for various reasons at various phases. But I had, uh, as I, I think um, we haven't talked about this, I had become, begun to think very uh, positively about the Congress after 1991. I'd been a staunch critic of the um, feelings of the emergency, of the, the, the excessive state control of the economy, um, uh, over-bureaucratization, etc., etc. And I had not minced my words in my earlier writings. If you read my book, India from Midnight to the Millennium, you'll see if, uh, quite a lot about that in the early years. But from 91 with Manmohan Singh's liberalization, uh, I really began to feel that the Congress party had actually freed Indians from some of the uh, burdens of the colonial past, as well as the burdens imposed by the statist approach of previous years, and that now Indians were going to grow and, and flourish. Uh, in the course of the UPA first term, I could see how much tremendous progress was being made in pulling Indians out from below the poverty line. Uh, I was talking regularly with Dr. Manmohan Singh, his peace initiatives to Pakistan, I was in the loop on, uh, because as uh, the Undersecretary General for Public Information, I had the job at the UN uh, to chair any press conference by head of state or government. And Mr. Musharraf, unlike Dr. Manmohan Singh, insisted on holding a press conference every year. And whereas on the first year, the Pakistani ambassador asked specifically that it should not be me because I was an Indian citizen from a hostile country, etc. By Musharraf's second press conference, uh, the Pakistanis had got around to asking specifically for me 
uh, they said it will send a very good signal that an Indian is chairing the press conference of the Pakistani president. So as a result, I was having, you know, 15 minutes with keeping controversy out and being. Oh, yeah. That, right. Yeah, absolutely. And I and did all of that, but I conducted the, I conducted the conference very fairly. Um, I didn't overly favor Indian journalists against Pakistanis or whatever. I gave also, but I also had an opportunity to talk to President Musharraf uh, several times in the process because we met backstage, as it were, behind the podium for 10, 15 minutes uh, before and after. Uh, uh, and, and so in doing these briefings, um, I had this access. And so on a couple of occasions, the Prime Minister of India actually conveyed a message through me uh, uh, to sort of convey a signal of assurance that he was serious about his initiatives. And the President of Pakistan did the same back through me. So there was actually a very, um, shall we say, I had, I had a good ringside view of the sincerity of both individuals in the early days of their, their dialogue. Of course, I left the UN at um, the beginning of 2007, these press conferences at the time of the General Assembly. So uh, after that, I couldn't I couldn't um, uh, handle them. And in 2006, because I was a candidate for Secretary General, I didn't do that press conference. Kofi had asked me to take leave without pay by then. So uh, I didn't I didn't do Musharraf's press conference. But in 2004 and five, I had done so. And those were the two years in which uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh and uh, Mr. Musharraf had uh, exchanged messages through me. So I, anyway, I'm just saying that we had all of the stuff going, but um, but when um, when uh, I had a, a good opinion of the Congress Party, that didn't necessarily mean that I uh, was going to have a political career because I knew that somebody of my background really didn't have any scope in politics. But to my did surprise, uh, I beg your pardon. Uh, that, did you think that should um, should you contest, you would have a real shot at winning? Or was that thought not even there? To be honest, I knew so little about it that I, I didn't really have a clue. But I did feel that I would have to pick my battlegrounds carefully. So I was asked by the uh, then head of the Kerala Pradesh Congress Committee, Ramesh Chanitala, whether I'd be interested in contesting. In fact, he was speaking. we were speaking in Malayalam to each other. My Malayalam was still very rudimentary. And I didn't understand the word he used for contesting. So I said, why not, in order to buy time? And then I was going to check with friends, what does this word mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, why not? And he said, oh, that's interesting or something. And we left the conversation and later asked a friend, what does this word mean? And he said, it means, would you be interested in contesting, contesting the election? Oh, I said, he didn't use the word election. He said, but that's what the word means. And I uh-huh. said, oh, boy, well, it looks like I've given them a signal that I'm interested in contesting the election. Do you but that message clearly, clearly traveled up the chain. Uh, if you ask me when it was, I can't tell you, but sometime you probably very word? early. I'm the sorry. Word? Do you remember the word? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's malserike. Malserike means to compete or to contest. I see. And uh, malserikyo was the word he used. Would you contest? Right. And, and uh, you know, I really wasn't sure what he meant. And he didn't say, would you contest the next election? He just said, will you contest? And I had right. to kind of guess. So anyway, to cut a long story short, um, with that, um, I think the uh, news of my interest began spreading within the party. To my utter astonishment, the Congress uh, District Committee in Palakkad, which is where my parents' ancestral villages are located, passed a unanimous resolution asking the party to put me forward as a candidate there. And I was a bit taken aback, but I did a little bit of quick research and homework and consulted people from Kerala. And I thought that would turn out to be a very bad idea for me to agree to, because in fact, though my parents' villages were in Palakkad District, 
they were not in Palakkad constituency. They were in a neighboring constituency called Alathur, which was reserved for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. So I wouldn't even be able to use my home address, which was still the permanent address on my passport, uh, as my base. I would have to rent a place in Palakkad town. I would not really be calling on the home base support, the village support, etc. Secondly, Palakkad is a small town, principally agricultural. And um, I thought that in as much as I would stand a chance in, in, in electoral politics, it could only be amongst people who'd heard of me. And I was more likely, I thought, to have a following in a more sophisticated, bigger town with a readership. All my books so that, to that date had been translated into Malayalam, so that people who read my books in Malayalam at least, uh, people who know about me, who I am, uh, that will give me a leg up, but in a, in a predominantly rural constituency, which was at that point known to be a stronghold of the CPM, I didn't think it was going to be such a good idea. So when the conversations reached the level of the Congress president and she asked to see me and I called on her in Delhi, I said very frankly, thanks, but no thanks. I don't think this is a wise idea for these reasons. I gave her the reason I just gave you. So I said, um, the only two cities where I think I'd have a chance are Kochi and Tiruvannathapuram. Kochi, I know you always, all parties normally run a Christian candidate. It's a, it's a Christian plurality town. Uh, but Tiruvannathapuram, my being a Hindu and a Nair is not a disadvantage. So I'd like to be considered for Tiruvannathapuram. Mm. Now, I was still taking a risk because the two previous elections in Tiruvannathapuram, the seat had been won by the communists. So it was not that I was asking for a safe seat. But nonetheless, it was the capital of the state. It was a prestige seat. There were some doubts about it. And um, <laughs> I won't name him, but a former minister uh, uh, of, of the Rajiv Gandhi government, or maybe even the Narasimha Rao government, uh, who had meanwhile left the party and then returned to it and was angling for that seat, uh, sent Mrs. Gandhi pages and pages that she showed me with a laugh of extracts from my earlier writings that had been critical of the Congress party, saying to her, how can you name a guy who's been said such nasty things about the Congress party to a ticket? Mm. Uh, but she laughed about it, saying that, you know, if you're sure you want to fight under our banner and you so support what we stand for, we, we'll, we'll ask for you. But anyway, uh, I still said no to Palakkad. Um, I left uh, a very clear signal that if Tiruvanthapuram was offered, I was prepared to take it, but they could not give any commitments. I fully respected that. Mine was not, as far as I know, one of the three names submitted by the the uh, Pradesh Congress Committee for, for Tiruvanantapuram, though they made it clear they wouldn't mind having me for Palakkad, which was a, considered a lost seat anyway. So that's so often what happens in politics. agree hmm? with your analysis. They thought that you're still more suited for Palakkad no, fight. I, no, I think the calculation is very simple, that uh, Palakkad is a lost seat anyway. No congressman oh, was likely okay. to win it. If right. Shashi Tharoor pulls off a miracle because of whatever magical appeal, then it's a bonus for us. If he loses, we lose nothing because we're going to lose our seat anyway. I mean, I think that was honestly the calculation. Uh, and in the three elections since we have continued to lose that seat, except this election 2019, when we had a whitewash almost in, in Kerala, defeating the commies in every seat bar one. So we won Palakkad. But otherwise, um, Palakkad was considered a very difficult seat. Anyway, I, I'm not I'm not being cynical about this. I, there were also, frankly, some very uh, uh, favored members of the of the of the um, of the uh, uh, party in good standing who wanted the Trivandrum seat other than this unfortunate minister. So um, I think I think in all fairness, uh, it was pretty clear at that point that uh, I was not, shall we say, the person whom the party wanted. But right. um, 
Mrs. Gandhi uh, and the high command uh, decided uh, otherwise. It was literally at the last minute. I got a call the day of the announcement of the candidacies that I would be the candidate. Uh, I rushed to Kerala, and um, and when it Did was announced, you have a place to nothing, start? nothing. I had I had nothing. I had this um, uh, a businessman friend who happened to be from Tiruvannantapuram, uh, and his friends were the only people I could talk to. And his friends were from all sorts of walks of life. One guy was a journalist or the son of a communist leader. Another guy was a, 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 a business executive who was the nephew of a communist leader. And none of them were particularly well-known Congress people. So um, it, it was a huge Anyway, I, I had agreed to do this, so I went in. But it became very clear I hadn't a clue what I'd bitten off. I would have to say that election campaign in 2019 was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And it was... Um, Backed into an intense three weeks. I was told on one day, I've forgotten the exact, something like the 19th of March. Uh, I think 20th was the last day for filing of nominations. Uh, <laughs> and the campaign started and three weeks later, voting took place. So it was an intensely insane three weeks um, during which, and of course, um, I just was essentially cast into the hands of the Congress Party machinery uh, because uh, they knew how to run elections and I didn't. I attracted a rather unusual motley crowd of non-politicians. Apart from my Tiruvannamalai businessman's friends, uh, there were people who volunteered from uh, the outside world. So I had a, a, a UN colleague who just retired who came. An ILO colleague who had not retired took leave and came and campaigned, even though he didn't know a word of Malayalam, he was a Punjabi. Um, I had a, a, a banker and securities trader who took uh, four weeks leave to come and be with me, and so on. So there were half a dozen. This became your war rooms. A war they, room became, they became my backstage war room. We couldn't present them to the Congress Party. Congress wouldn't recognize them. But they did all sorts of things that the Congress Party was not used to doing. They helped run a website for me. They helped liaise with the national and international journalists who were fascinated by this campaign. So we had such a large number of journalists descending on my on my on my constituency and we had English speakers who were able to deal with them we had um, uh, uh, all I mean all sorts of all sorts of uh, uh, unusual things to do uh, playing escort services to visiting uh, foreigners um, trying to write up uh, English language press releases which no one in Kerala politics had felt we need to do before that etc um, etc et uh, not writing tweets yet because at that point my Twitter account existed but was not being actively used since I hadn't fully mastered the art. Um, and I think they were all of 10,000 Twitter users in the whole of India or something at that point. So it wasn't exactly, or not even 10, maybe three or 4,000. So it wasn't exactly a major medium. But the web was uh, beginning to be one and we ran a website, etc. Anyway, to, to, to do all of this was, was amazing. But what was very tough was the hours. The campaigning hours officially ended at 10 p.m., but the party in those days disregarded that and said, well, switch off the mic in deference to the election commission when you go on campaigning. And uh, you just I shouted myself hoarse talking without a mic till midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. many nights. Then I would get back to my home, collapse, exhausted and have to be up again at 5 a.m. for a 6 a.m. start. It was absolutely murderous. Uh, the campaign, as I said, the toughest thing I'd done in the hottest month of the year. And that, too, in a, in a profession I knew nothing about from the inside. I'd never even seen an election campaign. In fact, I'd never even voted because I left India at the age of 19. And those days, the voting age was 21. Uh, so uh, since India doesn't give a vote to its overseas residents or its NRIs, I had never voted. 
and I'd never seen an election close up. All I'd done was read about politics, which I was fascinated by, and write about politics. But this was like being, you know, the, the famous um, theory of throw the kid into the swimming pool and he'll either sink or swim. That's mm. what happened to me. I began swimming frantically. Um, uh, and, and I must say that uh, I had lots of hostility from within the party. Uh, some uh, members of the party burned my effigy when my candidacy was announced because they were backing other faction leaders. Uh, one faction leader uh, deliberately gave me the toughest possible um, uh, uh, itinerary because he wanted me. In fact, he was said to have said to somebody else, you watch this guy will drop out within three days and we'll get somebody else before the uh, nomination withdrawal date. Um, somebody else said, uh, you know, let's see whether he's got what it takes. Uh, we'll put him. Anyway, so it, it, it was amazing. I, I had I had a really, really tough year. But of course, I also had enthusiastic, supportive young people, people who welcomed a fresh face, people who were excited by somebody who was a name they'd read in the newspapers, suddenly becoming a candidate for them. Uh, they had, um, uh, and of course, the, um, the clear signals from Delhi that both Sonia Ji and, and Manmohan Ji were behind me. That also energized their loyalists because I remember once I was campaigning and a campaign worker ran up with astonishment saying the prime minister wants to speak to you. And we had to stop the, the vehicle and take a call to the prime minister just to ask me how I was doing, how things are going along, wishing me luck and so on. They'd never seen that happen before. So that kind of thing was um, was all very exciting. So there were lots of positives, too. Don't get me wrong. Um, and uh, I later learned from Mr. A.K. Anthony that Sonia G called him more than once. To say, I hope you're keeping an eye on Tiruvannathapuram. Uh, this is a good candidate. We've got to help him win and so on. So there was certainly a lot of support for me from the top of the party at that point. And uh, to, to, to um, cut a long story short, the election went miraculously well. Uh, and I won uh, not just handsomely. I won by a lack of votes, which at that point was almost a record win in the constituency. Uh, then started my troubles. That was not the... Uh, the end, what is, that was not the beginning of the end of my troubles, it was the end of the beginning. <laughs> the troubles continued. And uh, I went through um, a harrowing uh, few years uh, baptism in politics. Um, I mean, everything that could go wrong went wrong. into controversy way too much, right? And yeah, I mean, I, I, I still uh, have absolutely no doubt in my own mind that the controversies were almost entirely unmerited. And that in, in, in almost any other democracy, none of them would have been controversies. The notorious cattle class example. That was hilarious. Yeah, that was really something. So um, the government declared an austerity drive. Um, I had already been unjustly pilloried in the media for staying in a five-star hotel, even though I was doing so at my own expense and out of my own stupidity. I didn't know any better. Whenever I came to Delhi, I used to stay in either the Imperial or the Taj. The Taj offered me a... Uh, a bulk rate for a month kind of thing, which was discounted. So I said, fine, I'll take a suite of the Taj at that price. Um, not realizing that, of course, as, a, as a, an MP, I could have gone into government accommodation uh, uh, at much more subsidized rates. It was sheer ignorance and lack of familiarity with all of this. Uh, but anyway, I was, I was a front page headline in the Indian Express to my horror, saying that I'm living in luxury. And the implication of the story was that I was charging the taxpayers, which I was not. But anyway, so I was then requested by the finance minister, Pranam Mukherjee, to leave the hotel, which I did. Um, so when the government declared an austerity drive, right. uh, this BJP-leaning journalist, Kanchan Gupta, sent me a tweet saying, so, Mr. Minister, does this mean you will travel cattle class? He used the words. And 
the words meant something to him and they meant something to me because I've been living in the in the Western world for 30 years and capital right. class is a very common banal expression, yeah. which means uh, economy class. And it's not meant to disparage the travelers. It's meant to parody the airlines for herding us in like cattle. That is essentially the long and short of the usage. So I replied, uh, I thought wittily, uh, perhaps not so funny with hindsight. Yes, I will travel in cattle class out of solidarity with all our holy cows. Right. And then I traveled off to Liberia for an official visit as minister and the dung hit the fan. I mean, you had the most astonishing outbursts in India with people accusing me in the media and in the political world of disparaging ordinary people, economy class travelers. I was a snooty elitist. I had likened human beings to cattle. I thought holy cows might offend some of the Hindu fundamentalists. In fact, it was cattle class that offended them. So you right. can, you know, go figure as, as they say in America. But the result was that for two or three days, this was all that the political class could talk about. One Congress chief minister called for my resignation of all things. Then because in those days, mobile phones didn't exist. It took me 24 hours uh, to get to Liberia to find out that this was happening behind my back. And... Um, and I had to, uh, I'm sorry, mobile phones did exist, I beg your pardon, but my, uh, I, was, I was on a plane initially from um, here to Brussels, wait there, change of aircraft, Brussels to uh, Accra, change of aircraft, Accra to Monrovia, Liberia. So the whole journey to 24 hours with no communications in between. I was at the welcome reception thrown to me in Liberia by the honorary consul general there that I discovered that all this drama was happening. Anyway, I then dealt with, it as best I could. I first of all called the Congress party to ask uh, Mrs. Gandhi if they were genuinely upset at me. She was not. She understood where I was coming from. But she said, I think you better make it clear. This is not what you meant, which I did. That, of course, uh, uh, our favorite uh, television anchor felt the nation didn't want to know that. So uh, other things then uh, took over. When I came back to India, the issue was still live. But Dr. Manmohan Singh was finally able to puncture this ridiculous controversy balloon. Uh, with one sentence uh, to gaggle of press people who asked him questions about it at a Rashtrapati Bhavan reception. He said, for God's sake, it was only a joke, quote, unquote. And that completely deflated the issue. And and and, and it was over with that. So anyway, I, 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 I was told that there were some people in the Congress party who had not welcomed my entry into the government, uh, who had happily and gleefully egged on uh, their friends in the media about this. Uh, I will not look back on the, that entire episode with much pleasure. But as you know, there were three or four more like that. There was my completely accurate use of the word interlocutor, where I said to a, a, a journalist that uh, um, Saudi Arabia was our interlocutor. Uh, and because they have good relations with Pakistan, they were a good interlocutor to have. Whereupon they then alleged that I was suggesting Saudi Arabia should be an intermediary with Pakistan and thereby upending decades of Indian foreign policy when I'd said no such thing. Interlocutor does not mean intermediary. It merely means the person I'm talking to. So right now, Utkarsh, you are my interlocutor. That's all it means. And it's again a very banal word in diplomatic speak in, in New York, in UN. But alas, it, it was not something familiar here. So anyway, I went through controversy after controversy and various baseless things were. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it seems to me that right to be offended has become a fundamental right. Everyone seems to be taking offense on something or the other. And uh, for, for young people who are listening to this podcast around the world, when confronted with such a situation, what have you learned? What, what's your advice to them? 
Well, my principle always was that the, the, the offended should go and listen to something else or watch another channel or, or buy another book rather than wanting to ban and burn and, and, and block uh, those things that offend them. But that principle is actually not the lesson I learned. I learned that in politics, the wisdom of Shakespeare's famous line that the success of a jest lies not in the tongue of the teller, but in the ear of the hearer. But that was the principle that one should follow that it doesn't matter in politics what you think you intended to say. All that matters is what the public believes is heard. And as long as the public can be manipulated by the media into believing that something you said actually makes you into a, a racist or a sexist or a, a classist or a, a linguist, language chauvinist or whatever else, you will be tarred with that brush and therefore do not give people an opportunity to tar you. That was the main lesson I learned. And after I resigned from the government, the other thing that happened to me was that I had two years uh, of working very hard in my constituency, which would not have been possible if I'd simply continued in the external affairs ministry. I had done a good job in the external affairs ministry. And as a result, uh, the, bureau the bureaucracy, which had initially uh, perhaps been skeptical about my appointment, had really taken a shine to me. Uh, and, and, and in fact, with my resignation, it was striking the number of anonymous senior officials who told a large number of journalists how much I would be missed because I was a minister who mastered my briefs and I did more than justice to their preparations, whether I was answering a question in parliament or, or speaking to a foreign minister. Uh, and, and so they missed me. But they therefore had planned a very ambitious schedule for me. The month that I resigned, April of 2010, or May, I guess it would have been the following month, May, I had 29 days out of 31 scheduled for foreign travel. And it's very clear from what I know of Kerala politics that if I'd continued like that, I would never have been re-elected. That's not what Kerala voters want from their politicians. So anyway, I spent two years being a very good constituency MP, concentrated on what my constituency needed, spent time there, a lot of time there. And uh, after two years, the government appointed me again, uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh's government, as Minister of State for Human Resource Development, which was interesting and instructive. I learned a lot about education policy, and I was in charge of clearing all the, the ministry's responses to parliament. But At that I time, also realized, sorry, just to finish the thought, I also realized that being a, a, a minister of state is absolutely <coughs> not a good position to be. In the external affairs ministry, because their traditions were different, I actually was given specific portfolios for which I was responsible. So I was the minister for the, for the Arab world, Africa and Latin America, as well as for the Hajj pilgrimage and for passports and visas. So all of those things came under me and I didn't have to refer to the foreign minister to do that. Whereas in every other ministry and all the domestic ministries, the practice appeared to be that the minister of state essentially had no independent authority, that the minister, the cabinet minister was the only one who did it. So having accepted this position and the mistaken assumption that I'd get something, um, uh, you know, either school education or higher education or something, and I'd be able to specialize in that do a good job. Instead, I was essentially understudying the minister, who was a good friend, Pallam Raju, nothing against him. But uh, as I joked later, when I left the government, uh, I mean, rather when my party was defeated and the new government came in, I issued friendly advice to the ministers of state on Twitter saying that, do realize that being an MOS in the government of India is like standing in a cemetery. There are lots of people under you, but nobody's listening. And, and that, that essentially was the, the experience I had there. But sorry, you were going to ask another question. 
No, you, I mean, just on your HRD experience, you have a wonderful speech on education, excellence and equity, the three E's, I think. And I, I, I think it's still relevant uh, almost 10 years after. Um, we're going to attach it in the show notes. Um, you continue to win election. Do you remember which speech I'm talking about? Yes, it was, uh, I think, for TEDx and Mumbai yes. TEDx Gateway. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it continues to be popular, though they got the title wrong. I mean, they, they, they said, uh, whatever they said was wrong. I was talking about a well-formed mind being better yeah. than a well-filled mind, but that's I not what they have on YouTube. Yeah. They flipped uh, it. They, they got it wrong. But anyway, I mean, the, the, the substance of the speech, I mean, the whole speech is there on YouTube. It's been watched yeah. by a couple of million people already. And, and it, it's, it's a, a speech that argues for a different approach to education. So as I said, the one thing I gained from that stint in the ministry is a very, very solid, in-depth, Awareness, because I read my files. I had this good habit of not letting the bureaucrats take you for granted. Uh, I, I did my homework, even though I wasn't responsible for any of the decisions. Uh, I, I really did master the issues fairly well. And therefore, I feel that it's a, it's an area that I'm competent to speak on with some authority and interest and to write on. But, but that's another matter. Um, I, I enjoyed working with bureaucracy, made some good friends in the bureaucracy, learned to respect them. But they're all very brilliant people. I mean, uh, other than the fact that um, they write very bureaucratic English, which I always used to correct before sending answers to Parliament. So if you look at the answers to Parliament from the HRD ministry during my stint, you'll find there isn't a single uh, use of Babu English, as it were. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, they're wonderful. You know, you give them an instruction to do something that they don't want to do. And they will smile at you cheerfully. They'll never say no. They'll say yes, sir. And they will forget to do it. And then you remind them two months later, what happened was it's done. They say, oh, no, sir, you know, let me see. We can't trace the file, they'll say, and <laughs> this sort of stuff. It, it's, the bureaucracy is brilliant. And I, I don't entirely disagree with those who say that, by and large, it's the bureaucracy that runs the country. The government can set down the broad lines of policy at the political level. But implementation requires a bureaucratic mindset. And that may be why, or a willingness to challenge the bureaucratic mindset, which I have. But that may be why Mr. Modi has made so many appointments amongst the ex-bureaucrats. Ex it's simply not been there. We've always had a clear distinction between ministers who are, who are politicians and uh, bureaucrats who are civil servants. But now we are seeing in the ministerial ranks, uh, four or five of the most influential ministers are people who are retired civil servants, which right. is extremely, extremely unusual. And, 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 and unlike, you know, someone like a Natwar Singh who got elected from his princely constituency or a Manishankaraya who got elected from Tamil Nadu or myself, uh, these are people who have not even pretended uh, that they have any political base. They have been appointed to the Rajya Sabha and appointed as ministers purely because of their bureaucratic competence. And that is a, a surprising development in Indian governance, but may well be uh, a foretaste of things to come in the way Mr. Modi wants the country to be run. Right. Um, you're, uh, I'm just going to take a few more minutes, if that's okay. We are um, already 10 minutes over our hour. I hope your listeners will have the patience with Kashmir. Go on. <laughs> My listeners really want to listen to this. Your you even won the latest election, right, in your constituency. This, you're the three-time winner. The last yeah. election, the last two elections uh, have been, uh, you know, you've been fraught with personal and professional challenges. Yeah. Uh, significant ones. Uh, could you could you tell me what have been how have you managed to overcome your overcome those challenges and what are some principles that helped you uh, transcend the tragedies and and the challenges and and come out as a winner? 
Right. Well, the second election, that is the 2014 election, when the Modi wave was happening, was the toughest uh, because um, of an unrelated reason. Uh, in January, my late wife passed away. Uh, people were creating a whole lot of unwarranted controversy and false charges in the voyeuristic media about it. Um, there was, a, I mean, completely without a shred of any evidence, all sorts of lies were being spread. And um, because of that, there was this insidious whispering campaign against me in the constituency saying, how can you vote for this guy who murdered his wife? And it was something which uh, obviously would hurt any individual, but it was particularly hurtful at the time because I was the one mourning. And whereas the culture of politics had been that you would go uh, to even a political opponent's home to commiserate the loss of a loved one, even a parent and even an aged parent. Here, uh, I was being victimized for a tragedy that I had suffered. So it was really, really hard emotionally and personally. But what saw me through was the work I had done in the constituency. And in particular, I would say there were two or three projects. I had been very diligent. I had used my MP lads funds well, brought in a lot of small things and so on. But there were two big things I was able to do using my uh, connections in the central government. One was I got a number of trains to stop in, in train stations in my constituency through the goodwill of a close friend of mine who was the chairman of the railway board. This is how it works. I can't even say close friend because he was senior to me in college, uh, but he knew me from those days and he, he's the one who, uh, uh, who, who helped uh, approve certain requests that might not otherwise have made it. In one particular rural constituency on the border with Tamil Nadu, Parashala, for 27 years, they've been agitating for a train stop, but there wasn't stopping. They had a station, but no trains, uh, except the trains going through. And I was able to get them three express trains stopping in their constituency. And, you know, for a person who was paying 50 rupees for a bus ticket to ride two hours from this place, Parashala, to Thiruvananthapuram city, to be able to go in 15 minutes on a fast train or half an hour on a fast train, um, uh, for five rupees, which later became 10, 10 rupee ticket. Uh, obviously, there's no comparison in the, in the level of their gratitude uh, to the MP who delivered this. So that was one thing that helped. But the bigger project was there was a, a bypass road that had been planned for the constituency um, from, uh, the, from one part of Tiruvananthapuram, an area called Karakotam, all the way to the Tamil Nadu border. The marker pillars had been laid 40 years previously. But for various reasons, the project had never taken off. The project had lapsed. Nothing had been done. And I didn't even know about this because I was not a local. But when I was campaigning in my 2009 campaign, the locals came up to me with tears in their eyes saying, listen, we're in a mess here. Thanks to these marker stones, no one will buy our land. No one will even give us a loan against the land. They're saying the government can take your land anytime. So um, uh, we have the worst of both worlds. We neither have a road, nor can we use the pleasure of the land we own. So either get the whole project scrapped officially so that we can have it, uh, have our land back and we can sell it or whatever, hypothecate it, whatever we want to do, or get the road built because the road is something we all need. So I took that up as a challenge. It was the subject of my very first meeting after my election victory with, with the then Highway Minister Kamal Nath. I ended up having to see three highway ministers to get it included in the UPA budget, got it included, worked with the National Highway Authority, with successions of bureaucrats from there spoke to the members in charge, ensured that the, not only was the, included in the budget, but that the financial allocations were made in time. And what is more than all the processes, you see, a road is not just getting a signature on a budget document. There is a right. whole series of stuff that needs to be done. You need to follow through diligently. For example, a survey has to be conducted. That survey has to be conducted, notified, and objections overcome within 12 months. Otherwise, 
the project lapses. That's one of the reasons the project lapsed once before. Um, when I got this approved, I discovered a few months later that the survey hadn't even begun. I tried to find out why all the surveyors have been transferred to other ministries to do other jobs. So I called the revenue minister. Fortunately, by then, the Congress was in power in Kerala. So I called the revenue minister and said, for God's sake, boss, you've got to redeploy the surveyors back to the surveyor's office because we have to get this road done. So he was kind enough to help. The surveyors went back. Uh, they were going very slowly. With about three months to go, they hadn't finished the job. They were looking nowhere near it. I summoned them and read them the riot act with the collector, the deputy collector, deputy Tessaldar of the area. I said, listen, I tell you right now, if you guys screw up on this and miss this deadline and the project lapses, I will denounce you from every podium in your backyard. You'll find it impossible to live in this constituency because all the people are looking forward to this road being built are going to be cursing you. You better get this done. I was very tough. They took it on. They worked overtime. They worked Saturdays and Sundays. I think it was done in time. I had a last minute hitch when the MOS who had to clear the file in Delhi uh, was away uh, on home leave in Andhra Pradesh uh, for several weeks. Um, I had to actually get an official at my expense to go and find him in Andhra Pradesh and get his signature. Uh, and then at the end of all of that, um, there was a further catch that it had to be printed in the official gazette of the government of India before a particular date. And there were only about two, three days to go before the 12 months lapsed. I actually called the press and spoke to the head of the printing press to ensure that this particular item was printed in time uh, to come through. So the project didn't lapse. It happened within the 12 months, just under the wire. Survey results were announced. So diligence, perseverance, detail, all important. But then came my uh, communist opponent saying, ah, oh, this is just an announcement. You just watch. Nothing will happen. Uh, it's only on paper. Don't vote for the guy. Vote for us, etc. So to get this only on paper tag lifted, I knew I had very limited time because once the elections of 2014 were called, uh, the code of conduct would come and nothing could be done. So I bust a gut to get the first transfers made from the central government to the state government in record time so that the first checks could be handed over. I even called the member finance of the NHI. Bless him. I've forgotten his name now, but he turned out to be a fan of mine who was happy to hear from me because he liked reading my books. And I said, can you do this for me? Can you ensure that the first tranche is, is delivered to Kerala by Monday? And he said, exceptionally for you, I'll do it. He cleared the file. Uh, uh, the file, <laughs> the checks arrived, and I got the chief, the Congress chief minister of Kerala, Uman Chandi, to hand over the checks. That was a very deliberate signal because it meant that the BJP, had they won nationally, uh, and the communists, had they won locally, could not have claimed credit. Uh, and um, that's what happened. The checks were handed over, and under the code of conduct, once an ongoing process is there, it can't be interrupted. The process went on. The land was acquired. Uh, people were happy because they got a good value for their land. I intervened for them. And the commencement of the road construction took place under the BJP government. Of course, the BJP continues to try and take all credit for the road. But the people of the area know first that it started before there was a BJP government. And second, that on over 100 occasions during the last five years, at every stage when community objections have arisen, when problems have come up, uh, when people wanted an intersection which the National Highway Authorities had not given them, or they wanted an underpass or an overpass and hadn't been built, it was Shashi Tharoor who showed up in the area, met the local people, looked at the maps, summoned the engineers, summoned the contractors, met with the NHIA and got their thing done. Uh, so as a result of that, um, um, my stock with the local public was very good. So much so that one of the panchayats has insisted on renaming one of the junctions after me. 
because they were so happy with, with my intervention that made that junction possible. And at the end of the day, that road will transform life, the lives of generations yet to come. And I think it really was a major factor, both in my victory in 2014, the start of the process, and a factor, not perhaps the major factor, but a factor in my victory in 2019, when the road has made very, very good progress, despite lots of glitches on the way, because they've seen my diligently following through on it. Uh, in 2019, I, as I said, it wasn't as tough an election, even though um, we thought that it would be because of the uh, extraordinary strength of the BJP government and Mr. Modi's personal popularity. Um, what happened was that there was what we might call a secular consolidation across Kerala, where uh, the threat that the BJP represented to um, uh, the way in which India had traditionally celebrated pluralist coexistence had become so stark during those five years, and particularly in the last year or so of the government, that people who might otherwise have hesitated to vote for me because they didn't like the Congress, they preferred the communists or whatever, or they were liberals or they were elites and they couldn't be bothered to vote or whatever. A lot of these people said, no, the future of our country is at stake. We need Shashi Tharoor's voice in parliament and we need the, Cong the Congress to stand up against the BJP. And I know some people whose inclinations are overtly communist who said, no, this time we know that sending a communist to parliament will not do us any good because there'll be a very, very small force nationally. The Congress, even if it doesn't win the national election, will be the principal opposition. Let's strengthen it. And this is a voice we want to hear. And that, I think, is what clinched the election. I again won by a lack of votes almost uh, in this election. Um, there was a, I had won by, it was announced that I won by over a lack of votes, but then suddenly uh, a whole bunch of absentee ballots from the military showed up in the hands of some BJP people, and they were counted, and that reduced my majority below, slightly below a lack, a few, a few, uh, a, a, a few votes below a lack. But it doesn't matter. The symbolic value of that original announcement was that I had matched my victory of 2009 in 2019, and that was immensely gratifying. Um, so I would say, if you ask me for lessons, the lessons are hard work always pays. Uh, being diligent to the really important needs of the constituents, being responsive to their problems as and when they evolve, um, running an efficient operation on the ground, but also using every inch of clout or influence you may or may not be able to command at Delhi to be able to deliver, maintaining decent relations with those who can help you, whether in the bureaucracy, in the center, or even with the ministry. Uh, I'm proud to say I have a very good equation with Mr. Gadkari, and uh, he has never played politics with this very important national highway project, even if his local party men in the state have wanted to try and play politics with it. So in every respect, um, I think trying to get along with people and trying to deliver results is a, is a fail-safe formula for whatever you want to do in life. This has been fascinating, Dr. Sarur. May you continue to do the work that you do and uh, please keep writing. We love to uh, you know, keep creating your books. I just wanted to tell you before we conclude, that uh, this podcast, a lot of our listeners have been saying that you should just combine all of them and create an audio book out of it. So we're <laughs> going to get that out in the market and uh, get it to get this to you, and uh, maybe you can share it with your uh, folks as well. Okay, Utkash, we haven't. The one thing we haven't talked about at all is my writing, but on that, there's plenty out there on YouTube and on the 
on the net. So I hope that people are curious about my books and who didn't get anything about that side of it. But I mean, I just don't want to be unfair to your time. If you no, no, I, I can't now, and we've already we've already gone this far. But fortunately, that's one area which is well mined territory. Ninety percent of what I talked to you about, I haven't talked about anywhere else in the public domain. So right. that's what makes this different. Whereas uh, pretty much all my books have had extensive uh, media coverage, much of which survives on YouTube. So I would encourage those who are interested in that side of my concerns and my writing to listen to those. Uh, whereas with this uh, podcast, they have got a side of me that I haven't talked about much elsewhere in the world. Thank you so much for your time. We sincerely appreciate it, Dr. Thiru. Thanks, Utkash. All the best.